This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. Today, we're going to talk about happies. I was contacted by a listener that mentioned that her wonderful ICU was trying to improve their happy scores. I had no idea what a happy score was, so I had to look it up. Their hospital acquired pressure injuries. This made me so curious because I feel like the only time I really see pressure ulcers are when patients have developed them prior to arrival. I really had to think about it and realized they can't really happen when patients are awake, strong, moving, walking, changing from chair to bed to chair during the day, and showering. I was fortunate to snag Cammie, our wound care nurse specialist, to teach me more about how pressure injuries impact patient outcomes and quality of life. What she had to share blew my mind. Cammie, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. I was talking to a nurse, another listener at the podcast, and she said that she was interested in some of the principles we were talking about in the process of care because her team is working on decreasing their HAPSI rate, H-A-P-I. And I had to look it up because I didn't know what a HAPSI was. And I realized that that is a hospital-acquired pressure injury. And I think the reason I didn't know what that was is because we don't really deal with it here. So will you tell us from wound care side about where you've come from, what you've seen, and what you see now. Right. Hospital card pressure injuries have been known by other names over the past many years. So layman terms, a lot of people refer to them as decubitus pressure injuries, decubitus ulcers, or bed sores is a layman term. But now the current terminology is pressure injury. So it's been an ongoing battle for years, hundreds of years, as people have, you know, tried to recover from illness. But more so as we've been able to save more lives, have we discovered that these happen on patients after they've had some sort of you know, life event where they've been critically ill. And about 2000 and I would say six or seven, CMS defined them as a never event. So hmm. then we went, okay, our culture has to change because we've always thought these happen when our patients are critically ill. And now we had to do that shift of saying, well, their CMS is saying we're not going to pay for the stays if these happen. And a lot of us in the wound care profession at that time thought, well, how can you say that? Because these are unpreventable. So we really had to have a culture shift in our thought of how are we going to stop these? Because we know that this is going to be a large impact for, you know, our hospitals and our systems hmm. if we don't prevent them. So it started out with actually some my certification is a certified wound and ostomy nurse, mm-hmm. so CWOCNs, that decided, okay, we're going to get aggressive with this. And they started working through different products to try and prevent pressure injuries from happening in 
hospitals and they found that even just by using a foam dressing from the very beginning and putting them over bony prominences, they were able to significantly reduce rates, which was a very different way yeah. of treating things than we were before, than just turning them and putting them on a different surface. So from there, it just kind of trickled on to where, hey, there's probably more options, you know, to help improve these rates. And so it's really been a driving factor for wound care to help reduce those rates. So, yeah. And what, what are some of the other contributing factors or the other barriers? I mean, you've worked in different ICUs. Sure. What are the differences you see between those ICUs? Yeah. I think the big thing is nursing education. So the best thing that we've found here and actually my experience at the other hospital is educating our bedside nurses, getting them invested in knowing that this really is toes the line with them taking full responsibility for this, their skin, their patient's health of their skin and owning it and mm -hmm. saying, and I've been really impressed here where nurses, they own every patient and their skin as their own and they're invested in keeping that skin healthy. So mm -hmm. it starts out with educating your bedside nurses into saying, okay, as soon as I get that admission, one of the first top priorities besides all the other critical things I need to do is doing a head to toe, head to toe assessment of their skin, accounting for what they see. Mm -hmm. And no matter how minor, you know, considering that as a potential problem and then documenting it. And we encourage our nurses, you know, document what you see. If you're not sure, then reach out to us as a specialist mm -hmm. and then we'll help you, you know, label it appropriately. But if they don't document what they see, then if it isn't characterized in that first 24 hours, then it becomes owned by us as a facility. So, and then we're responsible and claim, have to claim that if it ends up being a pressure injury. So that's probably one of the biggest barriers in hospitals is just getting that buy-in from the bedside nursing huh. and also administration to give us the amount of um, staff it takes to educate nurses and and also the physicians that this is important and we need to take the extra time to educate and get that buy-in from the bedside nursing so yeah and I, I've, I see that because the only time I really see pressure injuries are when they come from other facilities it feels like that's the only time I'm really made aware that they've occurred on patients and it is so important to document where they came from because that's a huge liability. And it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a sign of abuse, neglect, things that no one wants to do to patients. So when this other ICU reached out and said, we're trying to decrease our HAPSI rate, I had to grab you. When I saw sure. you, you came to see a patient just yesterday that had um, come in with a very severe decubitus ulcer. And it was really upsetting for the staff because we're not used to seeing those. You treat so many things in our ICU, but pressure ulcers are that common list that come with it, but especially they're not really caused here. What, Which is very rare actually to have a... How rare is that? Like what do you, right. what have you seen in critical care especially? Right. So nationally, it's really hard to benchmark nationally because there's so many factors that go into the way they collect their data. Mm. But we usually do a big study with Hill-Rom where we can kind of bench with other Hill-Rom studies. So nationally, you can see a rate anywhere between 6 to 8% to 30% of our patients acquire hospital-acquired pressure injuries, which... I mean, that's a staggering rate. Um, Up with, to 30%? Yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. Especially when you get into the extended, the skilled nursing facilities. Mm-hmm. Um, but within Intermountain, our rates are significantly lower. We kind of vary between a 0.6 to at worst a 2%. So significantly lower than a national. And then here at LDS Hospital, it's been we've been really proud to have a 0% for the last two years, which is almost pretty unheard of. So we've had a lot of people reach out. So yes, it's something that here, I think that our staff takes for granted because we've already developed this culture of, hey, we have, we're already doing these things. So Mm -hmm. they already kind of become just natural for us to own, to offload patients, to turn patients, to assess patients. So that culture is established. Yeah. Right. So it just seems like it's a rare thing, but in other hospitals, it's an ongoing battle constantly. And it feels like, you know, you're spinning your wheels because you feel like a lot of staff are saying, well, we're doing a lot of these things, but they're not consistently doing everything they need to do. And so you get those holes and then you're going to get the pressure injuries. So, I mean, and the more you have patients as a whole immobilized, sedated, not moving, then you really have to be so diligent about turning. I know that our nurses turn our patients, but on very rare occasions, do they really have to? If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. So most of our patients are awake, sitting in the chair during the day, moving. They can shift themselves in the chair. They can shift themselves in the bed. I mean, most people aren't going to lay in the same spot. You'd um, be surprised. Really, even when they're awake and strong. Yep, you'd be surprised at how many. So one thing we've done since I started here was we made sure our surfaces were of a good quality, meaning our beds, Uh not only that, our chairs. So even you and I, if we're just enough sedated or altered, we may not sense that I need to shift myself. Or if we have neuropathy or we've been sedated for procedures. So our normal, our normal triggers to help us reposition are kind of altered. So uh-huh. we want to kind of catch that by making sure our bed surfaces and our chair surfaces are, you know, redistributed that pressure by offloading. So we've made sure beds already are redistributing. We're using things to help turn our patients so that it's easier for a nurse not to have to go grab another nurse. Uh, yeah. Right. Because we're stressed for What are the things called? The taps? Taps, uh-huh. correct. Using a TAPS turn in position system so that the nurse can do that independently using cushions in the chair that offload. We also use heel elevation devices to help offload pressure injuries from happening to legs and heels. Those are hundred percent proven to be effective in reducing 
well, causing zero injuries. So, yeah, I mean, just those simple things and instituting those and having nurses just know that, okay, this patient isn't, you know, up and about, which most of our ICU patients still have at risk Braden rates. Mm -hmm. And so they just grab them for right from the beginning and institute those. So, yeah, I do see that. I mean, as soon as someone becomes encephalopathic or maybe hypoactive delirious or things like that, or any kind of altered mental status, you're right. They, I guess as a nurse practitioner, I'm not so involved in all those little details, but they do. They just, they just grab these things. It's always preventative prophylactic interventions um, to prevent those things. And so why is that so important? I think a lot of this podcast is about the long-term outcomes, the big picture. And so of course the pressure pressure injury is a sign of poor care, but what does that mean to a patient? What is it? What does it take to heal a pressure injury that occurred in the ICU and how does that impact their quality of life? The latest data I saw was that a stage four hospital acquired pressure injury in that state alone just can cost right under $130,000 to treat. So significant amount, right? And a stage four, depending on the other underlying medical problems that the patient has, I mean, can take upwards of a year or two to to heal. So you, that doesn't even encompass all of that time and cost. So it affects not only the patient's quality of life, but their family's quality of life, because now they're following up with wound clinics and home care or being admitted to skilled nursing facilities and having to go to those appointments multiple times a week to help get this wound to heal. Not only that, their, their risk of death is four and a half times greater than another individual that has exactly the same risk factors, but not a pressure injury. So that's... And what that's amount been, of time do you know? Four and a half times greater rate yeah, of mortality within, year. within the first year yes. after discharge. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> I like have to wrap my brain around it. So $130,000 to treat a stage four pressure ulcer. Yes, Your mortality rate is four times higher yeah, so 60,000 people die annually of a pressure injury. I had no idea. Cammie, yeah. I had no idea. Right. That's crazy. And also, the sec- secondary complication, wound-related bacteremia, can increase that mortality rate to 55%. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so. you just send them right back into septic shock. Correct. And I guess when I, when I think about these patients that are coming out of the ICU after being heavily sedated, right. they're very weak. They're going to sniffs because they can't care for themselves anymore. Correct. They have pressure injuries right. that occurred during that time that they were in a medically induced coma. Right. But in the sniff, they're so short staffed. They're, they're continuing to be immobile, continuing right. to lay in bed. Right. So how, obviously, how can they heal when they're still stuck in bed because they're so weak? Right. They can't heal if the sniffs continue the things that we're doing here by repositioning, get them moving, uh-huh. making sure they have adequate nutrition, that they have a good wound care staff that's helping to make sure that as the wound evolves and changes that they're being treated appropriately or that they're going to a wound clinic, which is really important to help get those wounds to closure. It's certainly possible. We do it all the time. But it does require a high level of, you know, coordination and commitment to uh, get these wounds to heal and education for the staff, you know, 
down to the CNA level, especially that I've got to take care of this patient. I can't just leave them sitting in their chair for, you know, more than an hour or two. I need to be turning them and repositioning them and making sure their briefs are changed or pillows are under their heels. So it's, it's a big, yeah, really when we get a patient with a pressure injury, we're signing them up for a long battle. Yep. I really took SNFs for granted. Um, it is not just pill passing. Not at all. I mean, we make these messes in the ICU. We allow people to become so debilitated and, and rot. Is that a bad word to use? Is no. that bad for me to use, say, right. that patients, when they're in medically induced comas, that they, right. they rot? I mean, their right. muscles atrophy, but their skin Absolutely. literally rots. And then we send them to SNFs that are already in these hard positions. We know. Right. Nurses know. We know what it's really like for them. Right. And they work so hard and they try so hard. But right. you, these are, these are vulnerable, right. fragile people. And right. I just hadn't really thought of pressure ulcers being such a huge risk factor for death. Right. And now with COVID, I'm hearing of these survivors come out, coming out of the hospitals and some of these overloaded areas, young people in their like 40s or 50s um, right. that are coming out with pressure ulcers from, right. from being oh, hospitalized absolutely. for COVID. I know a lot of that is because it was such a difficult situation. I know of a unit where they had 13 patients to one nurse. Right. There's no way you can turn them every two hours. Right. But yet... I look at some of our patients right now, they're two to one, but still, if we, if we had them totally sedated, right. it would change their outcomes entirely. And so I just asked the patient, intubated, she's hanging out in her chair, suctioning her mouth, and I was explaining to her, she'll be on the podcast later, I was asking her if she could oh, be awesome. on the podcast, so I had to explain to her, hey, if you're in probably any other hospital right now, with your ventilator settings, you would be sedated. And her eyes got huge, and she shook her head. And like, like why would I have to be sedated? <laughs> I didn't mean to laugh, but I was like, I, right. I know. It's, I'm like, I was like, right. you and me, girlfriend, I'm, I'm with you. That's, I don't know why you'd have to be sedated, but you would be. Right. So just even looking at her, she's been on the ventilator for six days, maybe. Right. How much more would her risk be increased to have a pressure ulcer? Significantly. Yeah, I don't know what the data for yeah. that is with sedations, but, you know, where she's able to be alert enough to help to direct us and say, you know, I, I'm uncomfortable here. I, I, um, need some help to be repositioned, you know, so that indicator for her to tell us, you know, I'm uncomfortable or whatnot, but there's something along the lines of seeing innovative patients and they tend to be more moist. They tend to be more sweaty. Oh. And I've noticed that over the years uh -huh. and that adds to an increase in risk and pressure injuries by just that retained moisture. We call it the patient's microclimate. So that alone contributes a lot to pressure injuries by having, you know, that increased microclimate next to the patient. So we, we as ostomy nurses, when COVID hit nationally, you know, all kind of rallied together because we knew that we were up for this battle and, you know, yeah. we've heard some really terrible things coming out of New York with young people getting pressure injuries, but not really only that, all of the patients that have been intubated or been really sick. And so here we became really proactive about making sure we ordered in extra beds and extra offloading boots and dressings and things that we might possibly need. But honestly, it's new territory for all of us, right? And so we're just going to have to be as extra diligent as we can to just keep those patients moving, turned as much as they can tolerate and creative about offloading those bony prominences with anything we can really find that's available yeah. to help. 
protect. So, well, Cameron, that just totally blows my mind because I had this whole long list of why not to sedate and immobilize and leave patients to rot in the ventilator. And I always, I had been thinking about the functional part of it, the muscular part of it, the cognitive function, the um, psychological aspect of it, the pulmonary aspect of it, but skin. I just, thank you. The organ of the body. Yes. Yeah. And right. that's deeply impacted. And, I, and now when you talk about moisture, I'm like, yeah, when I get a patient up to walk, their gown is stuck to their back. The, she, you know, the chucks is stuck to their back. I mean, they, they're sweaty, but we're getting them up. And a lot of times when we can get them, when we get them up, we just wash them off with a washcloth really quick yep. and they feel better. They get to dry out and then they sit in a chair and then they get back to the bed. Like they're not in the same sheets. We change the sheets while they're up. Like it's just so innate that I didn't even realize the value of that. Significant value in protecting that patient and their quality of life right then, like you said, making them feel better, but helping them down the road to prevent them from, you know, being signed up for something terrible as far as, you know, quality of life for them and their family, but also potentially losing their life because of a pressure injury. So, wow. Well, thank yeah. you. And your whole specialty for all that you do. I hadn't thought about wound care's response to the COVID. I mean, that's how sad to have to anticipate people coming out of critical care, having rotten parts of their body. I mean, right. it's just, it's yeah. heartbreaking, but I think the more that critical care realizes what's possible the why and the how, hopefully we can make your job easier and bring you less heartache. It's all a team effort. And yeah. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Cammie. Appreciate it. If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter. Schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts. Please check out the website www.daytoniceconsulting.com.